Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through Psalm 119. Today we'll be looking at the fourth stanza, which is verses 25 to 32. Uh, this psalm as a whole speaks of the challenge of walking with God as an exile who is living in a hostile culture. And it shows us how to walk that difficult path with dependence on the Lord himself, as, uh, especially uh, with his word as our guide. The psalm begins in the first stanza and very first verse telling us that there is a blessing for those who walk in the law of the Lord and observe his testimonies. We're promised blessing from the very beginning if we do that. In the second stanza, we are told that if we're going to keep our way pure in that kind of culture, then we are going to have to keep it according to his word. We are told in the third stanza that the way to endure hostility that is directed toward believers is to consider the testimonies of God as our delight and as our counselors. Well, now in this fourth stanza, we get a look at what living in a culture that is hostile to the gospel, what that does to our soul. So these verses especially deal with the internal struggles that we have as believers. So let me read Psalm 119, 25 to 32. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have told of my ways, and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. I've chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O oh Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. These verses begin with two laments. The first one begins in verse 25 when he says, My soul clings to the dust. The second one begins in verse 28 when he says, My soul weeps because of grief. So verses 25 to 29 deal with the great sorrows that believers deal with in this life and how to go to the Lord with those sorrows. Then in verses 30 to 32, the psalmist talks about what took place in his life when the Lord revived his soul. So in our first main point, we see this. <coughs> the sorrows of life can cause believers <coughs> to feel despondent, and they must take the deep pain of their soul to the Lord for help. One of the most common types of psalms are the psalms of lament. We actually started reading, <coughs> we actually started the service this morning reading one from Psalm 77. And in lament, the psalmist speaks of pain, disappointment, disillusionment, frustration, anger, grief, all these things that he is feeling that are going on, on the, happening on the inside. And those are things that we all feel at different times. That's why the psalms of lament are so helpful to us. In those psalms, the Lord gives us the help we need to verbalize how we feel to the Lord. They help us to see how we can come to God when we are cast down and get the help that we need when we're in that situation. Well, the first thing we see communicated very clearly in this psalm is this, is that no matter how great the pain may be, 
Be honest with the Lord about what is going on. Be honest with the Lord about what's going on. Sometimes I think we get the feeling that maybe it's not really good to be honest with God. But that's one of the first things that Psalms of Lament teach us. We can take those feelings of deep pain, frustration, grief to the Lord in prayer. And these kinds of psalms invite us to do just that. This stanza begins, like I said, with the psalmist confessing, My soul cleaves to the dust. Well, the soul of man is the inner man. It's the deepest part of who we are. Cleaves to the dust means that it feels like his very soul was like glued to the dirt. He is greatly cast down. He can't see how things are going to get any better. He knows he's in a bad way. He cannot see how he can raise himself up. And the psalmist is honest with the fact that he feels hopeless. The second lament in these verses, as again, as I mentioned earlier, begins in verse 27 where he says, My soul weeps because of grief. Uh, That's verse 28. My soul weeps because of grief. So his soul was dissolving in tears. Quote from Charles Spurgeon on this. He says, heaviness of heart is a killing thing. And when it abounds, it threatens to turn life into a long death in which a man seems to drop away in a perpetual drip of grief. One of the things that if you know much about Charles Spurgeon's life, one of the things that he dealt with personally on a regular basis was depression. And as he writes in his commentary on these verses, you can see that he knows very well what it was like to have your soul cleave to the dust. He knew what it was like to have his soul weep because of grief. And maybe you do too. For some, it seems to happen on a regular basis. For others, it may be not as frequent, but it's still there. So these prayers of lament are meant to give us a voice so that no matter how great the pain is, we can be honest with God about what's happening and about what we're feeling. One thing we are not told in these verses is what was causing these feelings of deep sorrow. Well, it's likely one of two things. First, it can be connected with being under conviction of sin. So what, so what we do then is this. If it's sorrow for sin, if it's sorrow for sin, confess your failure to the Lord. In verse 26, the psalmist says to the Lord, I have told of my ways, and you answered me, or that could also be translated, you have heard me. It's a very good possibility that the thing that was causing the psalmist to say his soul was cleaving to the dust is conviction for sin. As believers, we know that Jesus Christ has purchased our salvation. We know that our sin has been forgiven by the blood of our Savior. We know that we are saved by the grace of God. And because of that transformation, God has changed our hearts. Our sin is paid for. We are fully righteous in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we no longer see sin as a big deal. We do see it as a big deal. God has changed our hearts, and we're no longer, no longer able to see sin as something trivial, something that just can be overlooked. He's changed our hearts, and we can't approach it that way. 
Sin could be described as our greatest sorrow. Romans 7.24, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from, this, from the body of this death? David has some similar words to say. This is over in Psalm 38. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8. David says, My iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. That's what it means to have your soul cleave to the dust because of your sin. Conviction of sin is something that can be very painful when it happens, very difficult. But at the same time, it's a blessed pain. It presses us to confess our sin to the Lord. It presses us to be fully honest and tell of our ways to the Lord, like the psalmist says here. He is the one who can forgive. He is the one who can give true hope in the midst of great failure. But this feeling here of, of being so despondent and full of sorrow may have to do with heartbreaking circumstances. That's the other possibility here, and a good chance that two things I'm talking about here are connected. We live in a world where sin is just rampant, and that can truly just feel overwhelming at times. So secondly, we see here it is grief. If it is grief over difficult and painful circumstances, talk with the Lord about it. When we see sinful things going on around us, it's hard to just say, oh, well, and then just move on. Back in verse 23, in the, the stand just before this one, the psalmist spoke of how princes were talking and planning evil things against him. So when we see civil magistrates speaking of things that are evil as if they were good, that grieves our heart. When we see people who are standing for things that are godly and we see them being rejected and lied about, that grieves your heart. When we see people being harmed, because of the sin that is rampant around them. That just grieves your heart to see that happen. When we see those who profess to be, to be believers denying the scriptures and causing many to be deceived, that grieves our heart. And in this passage, the Lord encourages us to be honest before him about that deep grief that we may be dealing with. One thing this reminds me of is uh, Asaph's prayer in Psalm 73. Asaph kept seeing people who were wicked, arrogant, people who were mocking the Lord, and he saw how successful they were, how well-placed they were, how well they were doing. And he struggled a lot with that. He was trying to seek the Lord. He was trying to live a godly life, but it didn't seem to make any difference. The wicked were the ones who were doing well. They always seemed to have the upper hand. They were the ones who were being successful in the culture. And so when Asaph saw this, he said that his heart was embittered within him. He was pierced within. But he continued to take his deep grief to the Lord. And that psalm is an expression of how he did that. 
And the fact that he did this was a real testimony of God's work in his life. Same is true in these verses here in Psalm 119. Charles Bridges makes this observation, quote this on your outline. He says, never perhaps are their graces more lively or the ground of their assurance more clear than in these seasons of sorrow. They complain indeed of the diversified power of indwelling sin, but their very complaints are the evidence of the mighty working of indwelling grace. It would be easy when we're overcome with grief and feeling deeply despondent over life to feel just like giving up. I mean, and if we're grieving over sin, it's easy to feel so ashamed of that sin that we really don't even want to pray. We don't want to take it to God because of such the shame that we feel. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, they knew they'd sinned. They tried to hide. Sometimes that's our a response that we make. But God in his grace inclines us to come to him. Holy God inclines us to come to him with our sin. He inclined us to come to confess in very specific ways how we have sinned against him. And that in itself is God's grace, that he invites us to bring those things to him. And then when we're distraught over what we see happening in the culture around us, we're tempted to become bitter at God that he would allow such evil things to happen. But like Asaph, God in his grace causes us to bring that grief to him as well. The very fact that a believer is inclined to bring the deepest pain of his heart to the Lord is evidence that the Lord is at work in his life. There are times our souls cleave to the dust. There are times that our souls weep because of grief. And God is there to hear us when we lament about these things to him. Then the Lord works to address the sorrow that we're feeling. So next we see that he enables us to recognize to recognize that the Lord uses his powerful word to bring life, strength, and valuable insight to those who are weak. So just like the rest of the psalm, the psalmist makes it clear that the Lord uses his word to help, and specifically in this case, to help us when we're cast down. We see in verse 25, when he laments, my soul cleaves to the dust, then he immediately adds a request of the Lord, revive me according to your word. In other words, I feel lifeless. Please grant me life in accordance to what you've promised in your word. One thing that he might want to think about, may have meditated and thought of, he might think of the situation with Hannah. She was in great sorrow, openly weeping because of her circumstances. She was childless and was desperate before God, to be able to have a child. Well, the priest Eli saw what was going on, and this is what he said to her. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1, 17 and 18. Eli answered and said to Hannah, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So the Lord used the words of the priest to revive her heart, and she was no longer sad. Even though the psalmist here is deeply discouraged, the Lord has given him the faith to trust in the Lord himself to revive him. We see the same thing in verse 26. 
I have told of my ways, and you have answered me, or you have heard me. Teach me your statutes. So the psalmist was honest with the Lord about what was going on. He was honest and open about his sin. He was honest and open about the great discouragement that he was seeing in circumstances. And the Lord heard his prayer. This in itself would be, give to the psalmist great relief to know that God was listening and God actually heard. He was able to be honest with holy God and know his prayers were actually being heard. Every Christian has that confidence. Then he follows up by asking the Lord, teach me your statutes. Teach me. He knows the answer to this problem is to have a greater knowledge of God himself, and he's going to get that knowledge through the statutes of the word of God. He follows this up with similar words in verses 27 and 28. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Again, the Lord has given him faith that it's in the scriptures that he can find the help he needs for these really dark times in his life. And so he asks for further understanding of God's precepts. He's not content with just knowing how the verses read. He wants to understand them deeply. I kind of make this comparison in my mind like this. You know, we, uh, we've all had coloring books, and uh, coloring books start with, they just give you the outline of the picture. Whatever it is that you're coloring is the black and white outline. Well, I think what the, what the psalmist is praying here and saying, well, it's good to have the picture, but I want to see the colors. Actually, I want to see it in 3D. I don't want to just know what the outline is. I want to see the wonders of what, is, of what is in your word. I want to understand the depth of what is in your statutes, your testimonies, your ordinances. And as he sees those things, he can then meditate more easily on the wonders of his word. I think there's an interesting contrast here. Whenever we're distraught about a situation, that has a tendency to dominate our thoughts. We think about how upset we are that, this, that such and such happened. We think about how upset we are at the people who may have caused it to happen. We think about how frustrating just the whole thing is. We think about all the bad things that have come because of this particular situation. We think about all the people that have been affected by this. We think about how it affects us. And we think about the fact that we can't see how this situation is ever really going to get any better. You're meditating on your problem. Meditating on the situation that you're so distraught about. Well, that's easy to do. And the psalmist seems to understand that. So he says, Lord, help me understand more fully what your precepts say. So that that's what my meditation will actually be taken with. Not so much taken. Help me to, I know I have to, to glance at the situation because it's something I have to deal with. I have to address this. But I want my gaze to be on you, God. I want my gaze, my meditation to really be on the wonders of who you are and the truth that your word is teaching here. So what could he have done? Well, 
I mentioned Hannah. One thing he could have done was he could think about how the Lord revived Hannah in her time of great distress. And that would be a wonder that he could meditate on. He could think about how the Lord worked in Asaph's life when he was full of grief and bitterness. And God came to him and, 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 and helped him. And that would be a wonder worth meditating on. He could think about how the Lord came to the aid of the Israelites when they were being enslaved by the Egyptians. That would be a wonder worth meditating on. One of the greatest wonders for us to think about is the wonder of the gospel, the truths of the gospel. Our sin and the conviction of sin is a hard thing to deal with, but Satan makes it much more difficult because he, he wants to, he, one of his names is to be the accuser of the brethren. When we sin, he takes that sin and uses it to accuse us. You're not who you really say you are. What would people think if they saw what was just in your mind, if they saw what you just did? Could you even be a Christian for doing those kind of things? Satan takes our sins and starts to accuse us with them. How can you turn that around on them? You can think about the wonders of the gospel. How do you start? First, you start this and say, Satan, you're right. Everything that you're accusing me of is exactly true. I sinned, and it's bad. I deserve judgment, just like you say I deserve it. I deserve judgment. That's what I deserve. But thank the Lord, Jesus Christ came, and he took that sin. My Savior paid the price for that sin that you're accusing me about right now. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, I am completely forgiven. And I actually stand righteous before God. He's going to stop accusing you because it's not working. You're thinking about different wonders. The word of God can be such a help to us to help us, yes, gaze at the situation. I mean, to, to glance at the situation, but gaze at the Lord and the promises of his word. There's one other thing in these opening verses that's important to take the deep pain of our soul to the Lord for help, to help us to see that. And this is in verse 29. It says, remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. So the psalmist has been faithful to bring the pain of his soul to the Lord. He's been asking the Lord for greater understanding of his word so that he can meditate on the wonders of God. And now he speaks of false ways that have been characterizing his life. And that clearly is part of the reason that he's been so discouraged about what's going on in his life. So this helps us to see this next point, that we must recognize that believers are vulnerable to wandering into false ways. But the Lord can bring the needed correction. The word for ways, by the way, shows up five times in this stanza. In verse 26, the psalmist says, he told the Lord of his ways. In verse 27, he asked God to understand the way of your precepts. Here in verse 29, he's concerned about false ways in his life. We'll get to the other examples of how he uses ways in the next point. But this shows us really how focused the psalmist is on the way he's living, especially in light of the fact that he's living in a culture that's hostile to his faith. He's living in a culture that is not worshiping the one true God. 
Instead, they are worshiping false gods, including the idol of self. They're not concerned in the least with the true ways of God. The culture is not saying anything like, make me understand the way of your precepts. The culture is not thinking that at all. They have their own ideas about what's right and what's wrong. And as a result, their way of life is characterized by a commitment to false ways. Really, any deviation from the straight and narrow path of the Lord is a false way. And because of the deceitfulness of sin, people can honestly think sometimes they're doing the right thing when in reality they're going a false way. The psalmist is very aware of what's going on around him, I'm sure. But his concern here is for the false ways that characterize his own life. In one sense, this is a prayer for God to show him where he had been deceived. Show me where I've allowed some of these false ways of the culture to become part of my own life. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm believing false doctrines. I mean, that's really a brave prayer. It's a prayer that says, Lord, I want to serve you with a pure heart. But this could also be a prayer about false ways, not just that, are, that he's not aware of, but ways that he's very much aware of. That, he's, that sins that he knows he struggles with on a regular basis. And that's something we can all relate to. Every believer is aware of the struggle within his own heart with things that are sinful. This is the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians 5, verse 17, for example. Paul says, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh these are in opposition to one another. There's an ongoing battle going on there, and it's a very real battle. To be a witness in a culture that's hostile to the Lord, we have to be honest first about the sin that's in our own hearts. We have to fight that good fight of faith, and the psalmist is doing that by asking God to remove the false way from him. And the solution is in the second half of verse 29. He says, graciously grant me your law. Now, it's interesting. You have two things here that we usually don't see as being together, grace and law. It is by God's grace, God's favor, that we are his servants. It is by God's grace that we see our sin and are given the faith to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. We are in covenant with God by his grace. And part of his grace is, is giving us his law. His law shows us where we don't measure up. His law shows us the false ways, but also shows us what the true way is, what the way of the Lord is, what are the ways of his precepts. And by his grace, that is what we want to follow. We want to follow those standards. We know we can never be righteous enough by those standards in order to measure up to God's holy righteousness. Holy righteousness. We know that we are only righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. We know that's true. And thankfully, he's given us a desire to walk that out, to live in a way that we can actually say, remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law in its place. So after being honest with God about the pain, about the struggle, about the grief that he was dealing with, 
We see in the last three verses what the Lord led the psalmist to do. Verses 30 to 32 say, I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. So we see in these verses our second main point. As the Lord revives the soul, as the Lord revives the soul, believers are enabled to persevere through the sin and sorrow. The psalmist prayed in verse 25 for the Lord to revive his heart as his soul was cleaving to the dust, and God did that. So we see three commitments the Lord enabled him to make. First, he shows us that by God's grace, believers reject the false way and choose the way of truth. Reject one and choose the way of truth. The psalmist has just admitted to the Lord that there are false ways in his life. He knows that. There were sins he knew that needed to be dealt with, and he asked the Lord to remove them. In response to God graciously granting him this law, we see this in verse 30. It's the psalmist's fourth use, by the way, of the term way. He has rejected the false way, the sin that God revealed to him, and instead he's chosen the faithful way or the way of truth. Verse 30, 31, and 32 all show the importance of making godly choices, intentional choices. We can't use the excuse of being sorrowful and downcast. Yes, those are real things that make life difficult. But as we take our deep sorrow to the Lord, we are also aware of the need to make godly choices. In fact, the psalmist is really reiterating choices that he's already made as a believer. Like Paul said in Philippians 3, when he said he had counted all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. That's a choice. That's a, that's a transformation of life. The false ways that we hold on to are things that in some sense, we'd probably have to admit we don't really want to give up. That's the reason they're around so much. We kind of like having them around. But we have to be honest with the Lord about those ways and ask him to remove them. And then as we put off those things, we put on what is right according to God's ordinances. We can put off hate and put on what true biblical love is. We can put off dishonesty and put on truthfulness. We can put off selfishness and put on a real concern for others. We can put off lust and put on purity. By God's grace, therefore, we reject the false way and choose the way of truth. So second is this. By God's grace, believers persevere in the faith regardless of ongoing inter internal conflict. Verse 31 says, I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. It's interesting how this verse relates to the first verse in the stanza, verse 25. There, in verse 25, the psalmist admits, begins by admitting that his very soul is virtually glued to the dirt. He's so downcast, so distraught, so upset. But here, instead of cleaving to the dust, the psalmist says he's clinging now, he's cleaving now to the testimonies of God. He's holding on tight to God's covenant promises. He's holding on to the scripture as God's testimony about his nature, 
about his attributes, about his demands, about his ways. He's holding on tight to that. That's what he's clinging to. He knows that the Lord has given his word and that if we're going to follow him, that we must believe and follow his word. The fact that he's clinging to God's testimonies really speaks of perseverance. To cling, to hold on, is to continue, is to keep on. So there is a perseverance going on here. By his own admission, the psalmist recognizes that he gets really discouraged and depressed by what he sees in his life sometimes. He gets very depressed by what he sees in the culture at times. But he's not going to allow himself to get derailed by that. He continues to come to the Lord with his struggles. He's confident that the Lord has heard his prayer. He's committed to throwing off the false ways and then persevering in the ways of the Lord. And as he does that, he's trusting God not to put him to shame. He's putting his hand to the plow. He's not going to look back. In other words, he's trusting the Lord to see him through even when it gets hard, even when it gets discouraging and painful. He's trusting the Lord to be strong in his, his weakness as he clings to the testimonies of God. Well, the psalmist then continues his commitment to be faithful to the Lord in verse 32 when he says, I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. So from this verse, I think we can see this point. By God's grace, godly sorrow over sin transitions to holy joy in serving the Lord. Godly sorrow transitions to holy joy. The psalmist has not only chosen the faithful way, He's not only clinging to the testimonies of God so that he can persevere in the faith, now he says he's chosen to run the way of God's commandments. And this is the fifth use of his word for way. It's a commitment that he's saying, I want this to be characterized really by joy that comes from an enlarged heart. He's committed to keeping on, to continue to grow in his faith in spite of challenges. It's really quite an optimistic commitment that he's making here that he's going to keep on. Well, what makes him think that he can keep this kind of commitment and keep and maintain and run the way of God's commandments? Well, he knows it because it's is a commitment that honors God, and therefore since he's trusting the Lord, the Lord will enlarge his heart to give him all that he needs to be able to run the way of his commandments in his life. The heart is the key to how we live our life. It's the control tower of our life. By nature, the heart of every person is dead in sin. In order for anyone to be a Christian, the heart has to be changed. The Spirit of God has to bring about that new birth, that transformation of heart, so that then we are being transformed from being committed to sin to being committed to the Lord. The Lord has to unite our heart. These are all aspects of the heart being enlarged. The, 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 the Lord has to unite our heart, bring in all the loose ends so that we are focused on him. And the Lord is the one who must encourage our heart. That's why we can take our, 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 our discouragement to him. He's the one who gives us encouragement. He's the one who strengthens the heart. And as God in his grace does that for his servants, then as the Lord enlarges the heart in these ways, we're able to persevere in faith with joy of the Lord, even in the midst of pain and struggle. It's really quite amazing to see the change from verse 25 to verse 32. 
The psalmist begins by lamenting to the Lord that his soul is cleaving to the dust. He's weeping because of grief from the soul. This was godly sorrow that he was expressing. And the Lord took that godly sorrow as expressed by his servant and ministered to him, changed him, revived his soul, enlarged his heart, enabling him to run his race with a persevering faith. He takes that prayer of lament and transforms it to a prayer of holy joy in serving the Lord. Lord, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak to us in ways that we can relate to. Every single one of us has dealt with real grief, depression, discouragement. Everybody has dealt with that. As we've said, some deal with it probably more than others. But it's something that we all can relate to in some way. We know what it's like to feel really disappointed really upset, really sad. And Lord, I want to thank you for encouraging us here, just like you've done in so many other parts of your word, encouraging us here to bring that sadness, that deep discouragement, to bring it to you. Thank you that you are fully willing to hear, that you love to hear and respond to your children, to your servants. Thank you for doing that for us. I ask for anyone here who is dealing with is, is in one of those dark times now that you would enable them to actually use some of these principles to bring their concerns to you. And I ask that you would minister to them. I ask that you would take that godly sorrow that's being expressed and transform it into holy joy. Lord, grant us the ability to be able to see your word and to see the wonders that are there and to see how your word is there to help us to see the truth and to really see and to be able to trust in you regardless of what's taking place in our life. Thank you for being so faithful to us. If you're one who has never put your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to do that because this is speaking of someone who has a relationship with the Lord. And so that's at the basis here. I would invite you to, to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I can relate to conviction of sin. There's all kinds of things that are in my heart, and I know they're wrong. I know they're wrong. I know I have dishonored you with my life in so many ways. But I want to thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. And I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off. Or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is my